0: Welcome to Meno HealthCast, a production of Mennonite Healthcare Fellowship in partnership with Anabaptist World. We're glad that you can join us today as I speak to Lawrence Chung. Lawrence is a clinical chaplain in palliative care and nephrology and an adjunct professor in palliative care at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. He received his Master's of Arts from Mennonite Brethren Seminary in Vancouver. He's written about his experience as a palliative care chaplain. And you can search for this online, including an article in the MB Herald. He will be doing a pastor to pastor podcast for the Mennonite Brethren Church of British Columbia about medical aid in dying. I invite you to look for that after you're done listening to this podcast.
1: Lawrence, thank you so
0: much for speaking with me today.
1: Thank you. Nice to be here.
0: Can you tell me a little bit about yourself and your life journey?
1: It is a long story, so I'll be short. And uh, I actually started off not wanting to be a pastor to begin with. I thought uh, when I entered my, into my first degree, I was in Christian education and, and missiology. So that was my, my bachelor's degree uh, many, many years ago now. And I thought I was going to do some education because I, I, I love teaching. I was going to be an educator in an in a, in a overseas capacity, helping people learn about who Jesus is and how Jesus walked with them walks with them, I should say, in, in their lives. Then I worked at a church for a while, I actually at a couple of churches, and then I realized that is actually not where home is supposed to be for me. And there were many, many incidents where I realized, you know, there was a strong, if I can call it a spiritual magnetic field, attracting me more and more towards healthcare. So it's not just chaplaincy, but medical chaplaincy and healthcare chaplaincy. I started being a healthcare chaplain about 21 years ago now. So this is actually. I'm entering into my 21st year of doing this.
0: What was it really that inspired you to pursue chaplaincy as a career?
1: It was not me who pursued chaplaincy. Uh, it was actually the other way around where I was being pursued to do this. I actually had quite a bit of epiphany at one point in my life where I was quite burned out in the work that I was doing for church. And I thought that I would not be doing this church ministry thing anymore. And so I thought I was just going to do some teaching. And I have to admit, I was quite dis- disillusioned at that point. And I was in my 20s. And, and I thought I wouldn't be able to do this. And I was done with ministry, at least vocational ministry. And then there was a strong magnetic field, you know, spiritually. Pursuing me and asking me, you know, it was actually a voice from God asking me, why don't you think about, you know, doing, you know, chaplaincy work in a hospital. And I... I was kind of doing my most thing. I said, I don't know if I can do it. I don't know anything about medicine. I had never had CPE. Somehow I was able to pursue CPE and finish my units, my certification. And so far for 21 years, I've been very thankful and lucky that I was able to sort of continue in this work with proficiency.
0: For those of us who aren't chaplains, can you tell me what CPE is?
1: So a CPE is like a, a clinical rotation, but it's a one-year residency for people that want to do chaplaincy, medical chaplaincy, which means that when you have a, a master level of, you know, education in most most of the time divinity or or biblical studies, or even sometimes in some you know, states and countries, it could be counseling. And then you can enter into uh, this one-year residency where you spend 1,600 hours learning how to do clinical work in the clinical chaplaincy in hospitals or, I should say, in healthcare. It
0: sounds to me like you've really found your home in chaplaincy. You've stayed here for 21 years. Yeah. I also hear you saying how much you like teaching. How do you combine teaching with your chaplaincy
1: work? We do have a CP program at the hospital that I work at right now, which is the St. Paul's Hospital in Vancouver, BC. And so I do some uh, didactic teaching with my, uh, with the people that learning how to do professional chaplaincy in the long run. But also I do have a role at a university. So I I do some lectures with uh, residents and fellows. Also, I do some work with uh, nursing school as well, where they, they want me to do a lecture on spirituality, or sometimes it's more on the advanced care planning, serious illness conversation piece that I, because this is what we're good at, supposedly as chaplains
0: it sounds like you not only get to educate chaplain students, but also medical residents, medical fellows, so uh, training doctors as well as nurses. That's correct. It sounds like you do teaching outside of the hospital as well. I was able to find online some videos of you uh, on the website livingmyculture.ca slash people slash Lawrence. It has a lot to do with cultural competency these videos. I think cultural competency is really important in all professions so that we can understand each other and treat each other with respect. I really appreciate these series of videos that you completed to help others understand some of Chinese culture as it relates to medical decision making. Can you give me some insights about this project?
1: So this project I should say that the Canadian Virtual Hospital is actually started off as a, um, a project that we, somebody wrote a grand proposal to the Canadian government on promoting palliative care. And we ended up looking at what kind of resources that we can actually help, not just the general public, but also healthcare practitioners when it comes to educating them regarding what palliative care truly is versus what they think palliative care is. So we ended up having a lot of interviews right? when we hired a, a videographer, you know, and, and went from coast to coast you know, for about, I think, almost a year. Doing a lot of interviews with anyone from patients to physicians to nurses, NPs, physio, family members, chaplains like me, and anyone who's involved in palliative care and they want to interview them, their experiences. The goal of the website is not to repeat what people know or to, in a sense, teach people. It's actually more about helping people uh, clarify their understanding of palliative care. So there are quite a few sections on that website. Actually, Living My Culture is part of the Canadian Virtual Hospice website.
0: When you did those series of videos, Mm -hmm. how did you decide which uh, topics to talk about?
1: There was actually a series of questions i think there were like 45 questions they sent me ahead of time so it was actually quite quite a bit of an undertaking because it was video and so they they sent the crew to the hospice where i was at and we spent four hours having a conversation with the the lights shining on me and it was quite quite hot but uh, so and then they pick on some of the topics that they want to use instead of me actually choosing what i wanted
0: in your perception, what are some differences between Canadian and Chinese medical decision making?
1: Maybe I will look at the question this way, because if even if you look at Chinese or Canadian, there are there's so many subgroups under these two major categories. Different generations or an ethnic group could have a very different understanding of sort of medical decision making. But in general, I would say in in our North American mindset, in the Canadian mindset, we we do think. Of things in a more linear fashion, so case in point, you know, we ask somebody a patient about well, can you tell me about your pain? We usually use the scale from zero to ten that's how we look at pain. Sometimes I do some translation I, I do speak Cantonese, a little bit of mandarin, and I, I when I speak to some patients helping the doctors and nurses translate, and I ask them, Can you tell me about your pain, where you're at and often you know these <laughs> elderly Chinese people they would just tell me. I have a little, I have a lot, I have none, instead of like a scale, because they don't think in a linear fashion. That's one thing that is actually quite prominent, and I'm surprised that not many people you know, caught that You know, along the way. The other thing that I think is quite uh, telling is we look at medical decision as an individual matter, for the most part, in Western medicine. As much as we recognize there's a family dynamic involved in the decision-making of a person in, as he or she enters into sort of a fork in the road when it comes to the healthcare trajectory. We also understand medical decision-making is often much more than an individualistic endeavor because we we understand when people make decisions, they don't just think about themselves. They think about everybody else, you know, whether it's your family member, your next of kin. As much as we are in the Canadian context or in the North American context, there's still that element in the medical decision making, well, whereas in the Chinese uh, culture, what happens is you see a lot of these decisions will actually made by a committee. So it's not necessarily the patient or the mix of kin, and or you, you would and sometimes people would go, well, it should be the male figure in the family instead of the female figure in the family. Often it's made by uh, a committee, and you'll be surprised sometimes you know, these decisions are actually over a narrative base, kind of, kind of conversation rather than what is right and what is wrong. So it's, the ethics, are the way that we look at medical ethics or bioethics is very different in an in Asian perspective.
0: I really appreciate that. I think I ask every day, maybe 20 times, what somebody's pain is on a scale of zero to 10. Like you said, very linear. I even ask that of children, of course, and children also do not think linearly. I appreciate that insight the society where I live, you're right, we do think of decision-making as an individual decision. Decision Decision-making is not just about the individual. It's about the family. It's about the community. I think the other interesting thing that you said in the beginning there is that we try to put people in boxes. I did it for you. I asked you the question, what's the difference between Canadian decision-making and Chinese decision? And as physicians, we do it a lot. We try to put people in boxes so that we can try to understand them. But the truth is, everybody's a difference and even with the cultural competency that we try to have people's decision making and just each individual is going to be different in how they make decisions
1: well like a short example for that is i remember there was a an elderly chinese granny she was probably in her early 90s and uh, i think she had chf and, and a couple other things so she was you know you know towards she was moving towards the end of her, of her life and and then we had to talk about her co-status with her. And then she was very clear she did not want resuscitation. It was very clear she just wanted to have a very peaceful exit. And then a couple of days later, we we got angry family members coming to us and go, how dare you do this to our, to, our, to our mom and to our grandma? And then we ended up sitting down and then we realized they were very upset that we tricked their mom or grandma into basically low-code and and then they hit us and as we sat down and listened to, to their reasoning and their actually you know care for them their anger then i realized they actually are more conservative when it comes to the way you know they see co status you know because partly because they love mom and grandma but partly also because they actually were shocked that the patient was actually ready to go and so sometimes generation, you know, age and generational differences may not actually tell us the true story of how people perceive the medical picture and how we make medical decision-making.
0: Given the thoughts that we just talked about, what yeah. would your advice be to us uh, as physicians and chaplains as we do deal with these complicated situations?
1: We're looking at cultural competency here in many ways. And it's not just one type of culture. I think of three things in, in short that are important. The first thing I think is curiosity. We work in healthcare and often we have to move very fast. We have to get things done. We have to get people out the hospital ASAP. That's what we do. Disposition is actually much more important sometimes than the art or the science of curing. So I, I would say curiosity is one of the things that I remind my residents when they come in and, and do a spiritual care rotation. And I said, well, just be curious about their story. Listen to their stories. Let them teach you. How to look after them, and it's one of the most important things. Because the moment we stop being curious, then we, it's really hard for us for us to be humble, which is my second point. Humility is also a very important piece where we sometimes think that we know what is the best for them, whereas after we look after them for a little bit, we realize you know they actually do not want what we have to offer, and maybe it's time for us to go. What we have to offer is may not be the best for them, and we have to. Uh, sort of let them go and, you know, and, and help them to move on to the more appropriate services within, you know, their, their stay in the hospital or in whatever healthcare um, sort of facility they're in. And then the third thing I think is important for us is to look at that healthcare provider and healthcare recipient as, as a partnership. It is something that we know, we, we talk about that a lot more in, in modern medicine teaching. It is not a, a relationship where we tell people what is best for them we let them you know, participate, we let them own some medical decisions instead of just telling them whatever that we think is correct. But allow them to own the healthcare decision, allow them to participate in some of these perhaps what I call ambiguous areas in, in the, where we can actually allow them to participate, whether it's a goals of care discussion, whether it's a, a way to actually look at you know, what is the best disposition for them when it comes to placement. Those are important conversations that we can do in partnership as well.
0: Great. Thank you for those ideas about improving our own cultural competency as we treat patients. Thinking about the virtual hospice Mm -hmm. project that you've been working on, you were telling me about the Interfaith Memorial Service and how that was something that seemed really important for the patients and staff this year. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: There was last year, uh, towards the end of the year, where a bunch of us got together online and we realized that every year we, we do something called a Blue Christmas during non-COVID times that we try to help create and foster some rituals uh, for people that have lost their loved ones in the previous year and help them get through a really tough time like Thanksgiving or Christmas. But this year, we, as we all know, is extra hard for us because of COVID. What we thought that we could do is to offer a little bit of a service by having an, uh, a ritual and that is interfaith in nature. Combining a few voices as an international panel of people, we offer reflections, prayers, poetry, and some of us offer a little bit of teaching on how to uh, sort of get through this really tough time. But the message is not teaching people how to do this, how to overcome this. The lesson or the purpose of the the video was actually about letting people know that as much as this is really hard and we do not know how this is going to end, and everybody's going through this, you go through this, I'm going through this, whether you're a patient or a practitioner, we are all in this together. And it's very important to stay together, and it's very important to realize that you're love, because God loves all of us, not just somebody, but all of us.
0: Why do you think it's important to do this as an international panel?
1: I think we're at a point in the in world where there's a lot of animosity towards one another. Uh, you know, when it comes to the language that we speak, the ideology that we, we embrace, or even the ethnicity, the color of our skin, and, and the way that we see things. And, and people are tired. People are fatigued. And our little offering was basically helping people to have a half an hour of space online, not even in person, but online, where they can understand and they can actually appreciate the fact that they love like I said earlier, and somebody actually understand how hard this is, and we don't go through this on our own.
0: Before we started recording, you told me a funny story. What's it like to be Chinese Anabaptist?
1: So when I walk into a room, and uh, often because of what I do for a living as a clinical chaplain, and people immediately, they, you know, they, they get the guards up and they want to ID me as to like, who are you? And and first of all, what do you really do? You know, are you one of those Jesus freaks trying to uh, help people to um, tell people that they're going to hell? And and but people often ask me my denomination, and so I have no problem telling people I'm with the Anabaptist tradition specifically. I'm with the Mennonite Brethren Conference of Canada, and people often get very confused because they always think that Mennonite Brethrens or Mennonites are usually just Dutch, German, or Russian. So there's a little bit of a a little bit of introduction of who I am, but and it got people really curious about what spirituality is because they have never seen a Chinese Anabaptist, which is my hashtag on Instagram.
0: I love that you use it as an introduction to your spirituality and so that you can draw people in with that.
1: As a conversation starter, I tell people I'm a Chinese Anabaptist and people just scratch their head and all of a sudden they, they forgot that you know, they're in the hospital and they want to know more about me instead of actually telling me their story.
0: Mm-hmm. And that gives you the opportunity to share your faith story with them.
1: Yeah. And then people are curious about why I do what I do. How do you go home experiencing you know, all these challenges in your life and in, in, in your work? And, and it gives me a chance to actually help people understand what sustained me in my practice.
0: Mm-hmm. And what has sustained you in your
1: practice? I think is really the fact that when it comes to the end of the day, I can always go back to the center of my life which is the love of Jesus Christ. And, and that may sound very simplistic, but it's one of the most important things that I can hold on to. Of course, there are different ways to exercise that, which is you know, prayer, you know, the reading of the scripture, and, and having a community around me, you know, having people that actually work in healthcare and understand what I'm going through is also very critical. But in the end, it's when I come back to the center, when I quiet down, then I realize everything I do is because I'm loved, and, and I can do these things, not because I'm able, but because he is able.
0: We talked about the fact that the Living My Culture is a side project for you and that you have a day job. Your work focuses primarily on nephrology patients, I believe. Is that correct? Yep. And when I say nephrology, for those of you who don't know, that means patients who have problems with their kidneys. Many of these nephrology patients are on long-term dialysis, which means they spend several hours, several days a week, getting their blood filtered for impurities. What are some of the unique spiritual challenges for this group of patients that you work with?
1: When I started working with people on dialysis uh, on, and this is specifically on hemodialysis uh, about 10 years ago, one of the challenges that I see in the work is, is really helping people to see the disabilities. When people first begin dialysis, it takes usually like a, a, a two to three weeks for them to settle down and they, they want to stop. they don't want to do it because they think this is really really awful for the baldies and but after two to three weeks they, they adjust to the rhythm, you know the whole you know, dietary restrictions as well as the, you know the way that they have to relearn how to live their lives. They actually can manage quite well for the most part, even for people that do not have a lot of you know, resources and, and, we, and we do a good job at helping people. But the hard thing is when people settle down and they, they, they accept this new normal of being on dialysis, a lot of them have forgotten. They are actually living on a very low baseline when it comes to their health. And literature tells us you know, people on hemodialysis, usually the, the average life expectancy is five years. And we're talking about adult dialysis patients. So it's really hard to actually help them see, understand their disabilities and how that actually will eventually impact them in their medical decision making. And it's hard because when your kidney fail and you thought that life comes to an end, you have this life-saving mechanism called dialysis, and then you're able to engage. But you don't take a day off from this uh, three times a week for the most part. You you don't you don't call in sick. You don't you don't you don't take a holiday and go to Hawaii. You will have to keep on doing this until you get a transplant, or I should say, if you get a transplant. And, and this really makes it hard for people to make sense of the mortality because they, you, when you live in such a low level baseline function, making sense of mortality is almost like what we call existential maturity. And that is about making sense of this very limited life that you have on earth and trying to make the most out of it. There's a line that we use uh, in, in, with uh, our patients when it comes to goals of care discussions. And we, we tell our patients, we want you to live as long as you can and for as well as you can. So it's not necessarily a quality versus quantity uh, sort of tension. It's actually, we want you to live well and we want you to live long, but there may come a point where you're not able to do that. And and people struggle with that mortality a lot because they, they think they live forever. When you spend four or five years on dialysis, you're so used to it, you had a rhythm, you forgot that you're a very, actually a very sick person.
0: We do see that in many chronic diseases where patients can go along for weeks, years, but they're kind of on that fine line of health and illness because of their chronic disease. And it sounds like that's very similar for these patients on dialysis. And of course, some of these patients, if they are able to get a kidney transplant can improve, but some patients may not even be eligible for kidney transplant because they they may have other health problems or for whatever reason.
1: Exactly. And, and then that's a challenge. And just often, as as we may know, kidney disease is associated with diabetes and chronic heart failure. So it's the trinity of disease that I call and often that causes all kinds of trouble. We often don't have kidney patients die of kidney failure. They die of something else. It could be a neuropathy. It could be, it could be a cancer. It could be other things. And that the hard thing of of helping kidney patients make sense of the mortality is to help them realize as much as they're being cared for in a very intensive and and, and advanced way, it's still important for them to understand that they live in a very limited um, existence, if I can use that term. Mm
0: -hmm. I like the term existential maturity. How do you know when a patient has kind of reached that existential maturity?
1: I guess there are no pointers, there are no check boxes when it comes to okay, if we have five things that we hear from this patient and there's this okay, maturity that we and we can just check off and I can sign off and not see that patient again. I think has more to do with the fact that some people you when when you have these sort of ongoing conversation, it's never done in one conversation, obviously. When you have these ongoing conversations with them regarding the mortality, what is dignity to them as they sort of go downhill with the healthcare picture? And how do they think of the relationship with themselves? How do they think of their relationship with the family, the community? And of course, ultimately, how do they actually see their relationship with the ultimate one? Whether it is if they have a faith background, or not, whether it's God or somebody else. And you will sense a certain sense of peace that sort of comes through the conversation. You will actually realize when people have peace, they're not holding on to things very tight and they will loosen the grip on the hardship. As much as it's still very hard for them, we're still giving them a lot of medications and, and help them to maintain a certain degree of dignity medically. But they, they will express a certain degree of peacefulness and gratitude and still engage in, very actively in the way that they, they, they want to live their lives. Like I said, we help people to live as well as they can and for as long as they can. Nice. And when people buy into that, and that's where I see that existential maturity you know, comes into fruition.
0: I hear you saying it's not really an arrival point per se. It's more of a journey into coming to grips with their own sense of inner peace.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. This has been an incredible year. I was wondering how COVID has changed your practice over the past year.
1: Oof, that's a tough question. The easy answer is I do not know. Because it's it's such a evolving situation that we're in. Uh, if you were to ask me this three months ago, six months ago, I probably would have given you a very different answer. It's going to sound like a cliche, but I think it's important. This year, I have learned to rely more and more on God in my in my practice. As much as I have a lot of training, I have a couple of decades of doing this. It's easy to rely on sort of humanistic success that I that I I rest on for many years. There are so many things that we do not know how to deal with. There are no literature research to back up the practice that we engage in. There's nothing that tells us this will work. And we sometimes find ourselves praying a lot more at work than actually what we should have done anyway. We rely a lot more on God in our medical work, in our profession. I guess the second thing that I would say is I'm still learning. The fact that I cannot be a perfectionist. I can only do my best. And I say this because there's always a perspective in me. I want things to be well. I wanted to do my best. I'll stay another an hour. I say one more prayer. I spend more time with the patient. I spend more time teaching a resident. The reality is there are a lot of last-minute changes. I mean, this morning, I was told a couple of rooms that I booked for, for teaching is gone. And I have nowhere to go. So we're homeless when it comes to some of these teachings. And one of my patients unexpectedly passed away overnight. I was expecting to see her this morning. We can only do our best, and our best is enough as much as our feelings do not tell us the same thing.
0: Yeah, it doesn't feel like our best is enough sometimes right now. I think it's been devastating to patients and families and medical staff to see people with COVID die alone.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: A colleague recently shared with me how hard it was on her young adult child who's a new nurse and who has been seeing death every night in the ICU. She told me how one of the ICU nurses stayed by the side of one of her patients for an hour after the patient died without any family members. And that nurse just sat there holding the patient's hand for that hour after the patient had died. This story, I don't think it's unique. It's just one story. It's made me think more and more about how chaplains have been called to support not only the patients and the families but the staff as well. I, I just didn't realize how much chaplain supported staff. And I thank you for that. I thank your profession for that because we've we've all needed that. What words or thoughts do you have to offer healthcare providers as they continue to feel the effects of living under the shadow of this pandemic?
1: It is, it's not easy. Um, like I said earlier, as we go through a lot of last-minute changes, a lot of unpredictable situations that we face at at work. I was telling my colleague the other day, uh, you know, I have never seen that many emotionally and spiritually constipated people in in my life as a profession, as a clinical chaplain. These are people that they do not know how to express themselves anymore. We run out of adjectives when it comes to expressing our feelings. We do not know how to pray anymore. We do not know how to even lament, which is another thing that I often think is really hard for us, you know, and as you know, as followers of Jesus, you know, when it comes to uh, what does it mean to lament, uh, you know, in, in 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 our spiritual tradition. But I thought of three things, um, when it comes to sort of what do I say to the staff, and I have people come up to me often and, and ask me, like, this is really hard. I want to talk, and and they cry, and sometimes I cry because I don't know what to say to them. And I'm in the same shoes that they're in. You know, it sucks watching people. Uh, I was in the COVID ward a couple of times. Uh, we, we try not to have too many people going into the area, but I was there. And I can sense, I, it's almost like you walk into a cemetery even before people die. And it's really hard, you know, that the energy is really hard. I remind myself and my colleagues, the three things that I, I think are important. One is the importance of self-care. I and I know we talk about self care a lot in probably many many dietetics and and talks and uh, that we've heard over the over the last year or two but I want to differentiate self care from self pampering now when i say self pampering what i mean by that is you go home and get a glass of wine and or you know get get chocolate and I'll eat stuff that you're not supposed to eat and to get through you know the the shift right you know your set is not over yet and you need you have two more two more days on call and you go, I'm just gonna eat that you know bacon cheese dog that I'm not supposed to eat. And and then you, you eat two, not just one, with a glass of wine. Now that's what I call self-pampering, and it happens. And I'm not saying that's not a good thing to do, because we do need to pamper ourselves. But self-care is an act in itself where we actually have a very intentional posture where we go, I need to one, cut myself off from the negativity that I experience. So it could be as simple as. Really take your breaks when, you, when you're on a break. Do not check your emails when you're off unless you have to. Uh, when you're not on call, don't come back to the hospital. There's a COVID marathon that we're running right now. And there will be days where we feel like that we want to do a little bit more than, than we should. And those are the days we'll probably go, let's just make sure that I take my time for walks, take my time perhaps to pray and take my time to actually attend to myself my well-being, eat healthy, try to sleep as much as possible and do things that are actually beneficial for my emotional, physical and spiritual well-being. Whatever works for each one of us would be very different depending on, you know, individuals. Self-care, not self-pampering. So the second thing that I think um, I mentioned earlier is, is really come back to the center of your practice, which is the question that I often ask people when they come to me and go, I don't want to do this healthcare job anymore because it's hard. This is hard. This sucks. And I ask people, why did you become a nurse? Why did you become a doctor? Is to rediscover your calling. What brought you into this work in healthcare? Now, some of us may have different motives. It could be because I'm, my parents are paramedics and I do this, or my dad is a doctor, so I'm naturally inclined to go into medicine. It's important to figure out when the going gets tough, when everything tells you that you should not do this, why don't you just you know, get a cushy job somewhere and sit in the office? What is your call? Not to your profession, not even to your patients, but to the God that you answer to in the work that you do. So I often tell people, my, my real boss is not the boss at work. My real boss is actually the God who calls me into this work that I do. And the last thing I want to say regarding staff support is this. We work in an outcome-based industry. Everything is about the outcome. If there's a good outcome, then we're good at what we do. If there's no good outcome, then we fail in what we do. I want to delete that thinking off people's head. The outcome of our work is only a fraction of our value in the healthcare system. It is important for me to say this one more time. The outcome of our work is only a fraction of our value in the healthcare system. What is important is not necessarily the outcome, it's the process. And that means every single encounter, every single touch, every single loving care, every every single time that we engage with our patients, not as healthcare providers, but as someone who actually cares for them and giving them hope that they're not alone, is actually more important. It's actually more valuable in many ways than actually the work that we get paid to do.
0: Thank you. Thank you for your words of advice. Thank you for your thoughtful discussions. Thank you for laughing with me today. Thank you to all our listeners for being part of today's conversations with Lawrence and I. Please join us again next time. If you're interested in donating or getting involved with MHF, please go to our website or email us at info at We invite you to financially support the mission of the Midnight Healthcare Fellowship to help continue this dialogue about the intersection of faith and health. Musical credits go to Paul Schlitz, editing and production credits to Eugene Stavanis, and I'm your host, Joanne Hunsberger. Please join us again next
1: time.